0: Shostakovich's first cello concerto is one of the high points of the cello repertory. It's a great modern concerto. It's had countless performances, innumerable recordings, which is not bad for a work written as recently as 1959. I think most cellists would agree that it can stand comparison with the best concertos in the repertoire, the Schumann or the Dvorak or the Elgar. But it's very different from those romantic cello concertos. If you know the Schumann, the Dvorak, or the Elgar concertos, you'll know that the cello part is very lyrical, either from the start or from very near the start of the concerto. But Shostakovich sets off in a completely different way in this concerto. He starts with a gruff, gritty little march. Here it is, played by Christian Poltera, with the BBC Philharmonic and their conductor, Lancelot Fury. <laughs> there's definitely more than a touch of sardonic or black humour there. The kind of dark humour you associate with the Russian novelists that Shostakovich loved. And perhaps it's something also that was associated for Shostakovich with the work's dedicatee, the great cellist Mr. Slav Rostropovich. Shostakovich had often played in concert with Rostropovich. Shostakovich was a very fine pianist, and they also loved drinking together. Certainly a form of release for many Russian people during the suffocating weight of Soviet dictatorship. There are hints that Shostakovich was thinking of exactly that activity in the actual fabric of this concerto, because at one point in the finale, the cello has these extraordinarily whirling demisemiquavers. quavers. Apart from being terrifying to play, (laughs) those are pretty clearly a reference to one of Shostakovich's favourite songs by one of his favourite composers. That's the 19th century Russian composer Modest Mussorgsky. It's a song that comes from a cycle with the very Russian title of Songs and Dances of Death. And it's the third song, the trepak, which is a Russian dance. In the song, in the Mussorgsky song, those helter-skelter semiquavers quavers suggest whirling snowflakes, and the image of the song is of a drunken peasant who's staggering home in a snowstorm and surrounded by flakes of snow. And death comes to him, promising him that if he will just entrust himself to death, then he will have very pleasant dreams, and indeed he may even convince himself he's in summer as he falls asleep. So that idea that there's happiness in oblivion and drink and death is something that returns again and again in Shostakovich's music. But it also seems that Shostakovich was thinking of a very particular occasion when he and Rostropovich were determined to get drunk together one evening instead of rehearsing and found they'd run out of vodka and had to go to the nearest shop in the village three miles away in a snowstorm just like that. But there's even a touch of Russian humour about the way that the first cello concerto came to be written. Apparently, Rostropovich was keen for years, desperately keen, to get Shostakovich to write him a concerto. So eventually he did the right thing. He asked Shostakovich's wife, what do you think I should do to get Shostakovich to write me a cello concerto? And she replied, Slava, if you want Shostakovich to write something for you, the only recipe I can give you is this, never ask him or talk to him about it at all. Somehow Rostropovich managed to restrain himself for I think about five or six years, and eventually, to his joy, this concerto materializes. Well, we don't have Rostropovich tonight, but we do have a very young, impressive player Christian Polterra, who, as you can hear, is coping very well with some of the demands made by this concerto so far. So I'm going to ask Christian just to take us on his own through a few of the details of the beginning of the concerto, that little gruff march we heard a moment or two ago. Because the cello starts with a very interesting figure, a little four-note figure that's repeated like this. <laughs> Now, that's a really pregnant little figure. It's very simple, very condensed, very, very memorable, but also extremely fertile. It's something a composer can do a lot with. And almost immediately, Shostakovich sets the cello out to show us how he can develop that theme. The basic shape always remains recognizable, dun 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 da, but the intervals begin to change so that it's growing and changing before our ears, right at the beginning of the concerto. <laughs> shape changes, even the rhythm changes, but you can still hear that it's based on that same shape that we heard at the beginning of the movement. Equally important and pregnant is a little figure that the woodwind played in the background, just as the cello plays that figure. It's very simple, unmemorable, and again, has huge potential. And has wonderful scoring for all of the woodwind together, right from the high woodwind to the bottom notes of the contrabassoon that rhythm turns up again and again in this concerto you'll be aware of it all the time I think but there's also something about the colour of the sound that Shostakovich gets that's rather rich with associations there because it sounds very like those giant accordions that you sometimes hear in recordings of the Red Army Ensemble it's an instrument that they call the bayan there a gigantic squeeze box the point about the energy in that figure and its power to develop and suggest continuations, is very important. Because when you read some of the stuff that's written about Shostakovich these days, you'd think he was hardly a composer at all. The notes were just a camouflage for a kind of novel in music, or even a political tract, as though the way to listen to a Shostakovich symphony or a concerto was to say, well, what's he trying to say about Soviet communism here, or who is he lampooning at this point? Well, certainly the terrible times that Shostakovich lived through left their mark on his music, and it may be significant that this very opening material, that little march we just heard now, strongly resembles a march theme that Shostakovich used in 1948 for a film called The Young Guard, which is about a group of Soviet soldiers, young Soviet soldiers, who resist the Nazi invasion. They're captured and they're led to their execution by a music which is almost exactly like the music that we've just heard. So this does seem to make a connection with this idea of Shostakovich quoting the songs and dances of death, as though there's some sort of story he's trying to tell. But I think it's important to remember, as a composer friend of mine once said to me when I was getting very excited about all these quotes and references that there seem to be in Shostakovich, he said, you have to remember that the thing that's always at the back of the composer's mind is, what do I do next? It's not so much what does this mean or how shall I communicate this idea, but does this idea have the power or the energy to carry the music round the next corner? And this little figure that we've just heard Christian play certainly does now. I think if we hear a little bit more of it now, you can just feel how it continues developing. And although the shapes change, even sometimes so they seem to bear very little resemblance to what we heard at the beginning, I think you can still feel that bum-bum-bum-ba and da dadalum are still somewhere in the background all the time. The connections are pretty clear. Thank you to our tympanist Paul Turner for that magnificent thwack at the end there, but that according to Rostropovich is also a significant detail in this concerto because when Shostakovich was writing the concerto he had a look at another great Russian work for cello and orchestra Prokofiev's Symphonia Concertante or Symphony Concerto which was also written for Rostropovich and that ends with a great thwack on the timpani and in fact at several key points in the finale of the Prokofiev there are similar great thwacks on the timpani and Shostakovich apparently really liked this it, was, it tickled him. And so he incorporates something very similar at key points in his own concerto. But also, most importantly, if we bear in mind what my composer friend about ideas having legs, the momentum to carry something forward, in this context, it really does provide a springboard for a striking new idea. This is how it starts. There's something rather interesting about the notes that the woodwind are playing at this point. I'll ask half the woodwind to play that figure again. Play it a little more slowly so that you can identify those notes there. Now, rearrange those notes and you get this. I saw a few smiles of recognition at that point there. Just in case you don't know, that figure is Shostakovich's musical signature because the notes are D, E flat, C, B natural. Or if you use German notation, which is rather helpful in this regard, that's D, S, C, H. Or Shostakovich's initials so Shostakovich is stamping something like his personal signature on the music here at this point that may be important in that he might have some little cryptic message he wants to convey at this point but what's also important as I said before is that this figure has the power to drive the music forward just as much as that four-note figure we heard at the beginning here is how it launches the second subject the second main theme There's another figure in there that might have an interesting connection with something outside music, or as it were, through music to something else. And again, it's with Mussorgsky's Songs and Dances of Death. I'll just ask Christian to play one little phrase that we heard over and over again during that passage. That's a very common theme in Russian folk music, and it often occurs in lullabies, associated with a a phrase, bayou, bayou, which has the same kind of connotations as lulé, lulé, for instance, in old English lullabies. But it also occurs in one of the bleakest of Mussorgsky's songs and dances of death, which, as I said, had special significance for Shostakovich. And it's the passage where death sings those words, you, bayou, you" to the sick child. In the first song, the mother is fighting for the child's life, fighting against death. And yet death continually sings his lullabies and with predictable consequences. So it seems that there's such a lot in this music which seems to be connected with images of death the music associated with the young pioneers being led to execution at the beginning, those two references to Mussorgsky's Songs and Dances of Death. Shostakovich was a composer who was very much given to thinking about death, as many of his friends recall he often talked about it. And yet there's so much zest in this music, so much momentum, so much life, Some of that maybe you could associate with a kind of black, gallows humour. It's also true that the presence of death can make us more aware of being alive, and that certainly seems to be the case with Shostakovich here. There's a very striking bit of scoring in the passage that follows that one we've just heard. Uh, Shostakovich takes the clarinet and has it play the beginning of the cello's second theme, but pitches it in such a way that it sounds rather more like a folk clarinet than a normal member of the orchestra, and then after that we hear a voice, a new orchestral colour from the orchestra, that we haven't heard before. It's a solo horn. This is very unusual in this concerto. It must be about the smallest brass section, I think, in any concerto in the repertoire. Just one horn. Now Shostakovich is being quite clever and practical here because one of the biggest problems for cellos when they're pitched against romantic full orchestras is that they can easily be overwhelmed by the brass and particularly by the bass brass instruments. But here having just one horn and using it as a kind of alternative soloist so that more often than not it's actually in dialogue with the cello rather than playing at the same time makes a kind of practical sense that's very typical of Shostakovich. But also, there's some fascinating instances of how that kind of dialogue between the horn and the cello can convey rather special meanings. The horn, after all, has a very similar range to the cello, but it is a completely different colour. And there's a marvellous example of how Shostakovich contrasts them at the beginning of the slow movement, the second movement of the concerto. There's a very beautiful elegiac string theme, and then the horn enters on its own, and then hands over, as it were, really beautifully, to the solo cello. the way the horn comes in in the midst of the string's elegies like that, almost like a voice saying, calm down, a soothing voice. And again, there are just little hints of that Russian lullaby figure, by you, by you. And then the cello begins his song without words that follows. But interestingly, the cello's theme is in four beats in the bar, not three. It's as though the cello is looking at the issue from another angle, or perhaps rejecting the protesting element in the dissonances of the string elegy for something calmer, more resigned, or evenly flowing. Well, you can speculate about things like that. But when the 3-4 elegy returns, there comes one of those passages that often turn up in Shostakovich's that are fascinating but perplexing at the same time. You feel he's trying to tell you something, but what is it exactly? It's difficult to say. The cello takes the horn's, as it were, calm down, soothing figure that we heard at the beginning of the movement, this one. And you'll hear how the cello makes that the basis of a little waltz tune that starts on exactly the same notes. And the cello seems to turn aside, we get asides, as if the cello is half listening to the waltz, then half wandering off into daydreams on his own, into little soliloquies. It's as though the cello's toying with a memory of a tune, perhaps a tune heard in childhood, or a tune with ancient associations, and then wandering off into these slightly more painful reflections. And this does eventually provoke a very anguished climax, with the cello playing huge chords, requiring double, treble, or even quadruple stopping, playing as many of the strings as possible at once. And then the, the horn returns, as we heard at the beginning of the movement, with that calm-down, by you lullaby figure, even more soothing this time. And then there's an absolutely stunning piece of scoring, which is the fascinating thing about Shostakovich is that if you look at his scores, they don't often look very impressive in print or in front of you. They seem very simple. But then when you hear how beautifully they work, it's, it's absolutely magical. There's a marvellous example of that now. The cello returns to his 4-4 theme that we heard before resign theme but he plays it all in harmonics an extraordinary sound like this ghostly voice and at the same time it's echoed beautifully by the celeste wonderful piece of scoring very atmospheric at the same time pity the poor Celeste because that's virtually all he has to play in the entire concerto (sighs) now follows the solo cadenza except that it's actually more than just a moment for the cellist to stand alone in the spotlight Shostakovich calls it a movement in its own right it's actually the third movement of the concerto at first, it dwells on the earlier themes from the slow movement, but these are punctuated by this five-chord figure. Played pizzicato, it's strummed almost like a guitar. You'll hear those five chords several times during the cadenza, always separated on either side by silence, as though there's some comment that Shostakovich is making on the music that we've heard on either side. There are also some extraordinary effects he asked the cellos to do, like at one point he asked the cello to play the melody with the bow, as normally, while at the same time with the fingers of his left hand plucking an accompaniment. Uh, If that sounds extraordinary, uh, Christian will now give us an example of it, I think. But then the tempo gets faster and faster. Really, the tension begins to accumulate. And at the high point, what we get is the first appearance of those whirling snowflake figures from the Mussorgsky song. And then gradually, as the music accumulates in tension, suddenly the orchestra piles back in and the finale begins. That sounds like a really parody of a folk tune doesn't it underneath I think it's worth paying attention to what the strings are doing because they're playing huge overlapping chords and again this really does suggest the action of some huge gigantic Russian squeeze box an accordion itself is quite an associative theme of this concerto So another diabolical accordion sound. Next, there comes a really specific folk reference, one of those private jokes that you often find in Shostakovich. The strings and the woodwind alternate with this kind of wildly paradistic dancing figure. That's a viciously distorted version of an old Georgian folk tune called Suliko. And what we'll do here, by the magic of sound projection, is get the Red Army Choir to play the actual original version of that for you over the speakers in the studio. So here it is. I wonder if we could hear that distorted orchestral version again. Obviously, this is much faster, but the contours of that theme, da-da-da-da-dum, da-da-da, are clearly recognisable. Let's say the spirit, however, is rather different. Why is Shostakovich sneering at this Georgian folk song? Well, there does seem to have been a very specific reason. It was Stalin's favourite song. Nice, sweet, Georgian song loved by the great murderous dictator in some of his more sentimental moments. But there's an even more bitter irony about his invocation of that theme because the words of the song, a woman is singing, Where are you, my dear Suliko, her boyfriend, her fiancé, whatever he is? And the answer is, Alas, he's dead and he's buried in the ground. Well, so in 1959 was Stalin. So it's possible to imagine Chostakovich with this little quotation is saying, And where are you, Stalin? In the ground. Well, so we have we seen, this is music that's rich with associations, with possible meanings outside music, beyond connections with Shostakovich's life and experiences, his favourite music. Does this, in the end, add up to a kind of story that you can put up together, references to songs and dances of death, to the young pioneers, Stalin in his grave in the finale. Well, again, I'm still reminded of rather a marvellous mark Vaughan Williams is said to have made. I don't know if you know, but Vaughan Williams' sixth symphony was the target of a lot of speculation when it occurred as to what his possible meaning was. Was it a war symphony? Did he have specific things to say about war? What was his message? And apparently Vaughan Williams, having picked up a great pile of reviews and read them, said... Doesn't it ever occur to people that a man might just want to write a tune? In the end, what matters also is that these ideas provide the energy for a terrific musical drama, so you can appreciate it on two levels at once, for the associations it stirs, but also for the fact that it does make a gripping Musical story, a musical narrative, an argument. When you hear the end of the concerto and you hear how the opening material comes back, there's a wonderful sense of QED. It's marvellously logical. So here now is Shostako, which is cello concerto number one in E flat, played by the cellist Christian Polterra with the BBC Philharmonic, conducted by Lancelot Fury.